Hello. This is the recording of the ninth edition of my semi-regular Twitter space sessions. This one was recorded back in July, but I've only just got around to issuing it as a podcast episode. We had a long chat about hometown travel, how you can and why you should. And while it helps to have a sizable hometown, something interesting can be found in even the smallest village. Usual disclaimer, be aware that this conversation took place over the phone and is then recorded directly from playback on Twitter through my sound editing software Audacity, which I realised the other day is the digital equivalent of taping a song off the radio, very definitely quite old school. At least I'm not using a physical tape recorder for this. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Hello. That wasn't too bad this time. No, I don't think so. Okay. According to when I started, uh, it said my microphone was off, which is why I didn't speak, because I thought my microphone was off. Yeah, it told me that your microphone was off as well. Hopefully yeah, my yeah. microphone isn't picking up my neighbours as well as my ears are. Um, no, come on, yeah. I can't hear anything. Well, good. But if it gets a bit louder in a little while, enjoy the karaoke, I guess. <laughs> We had one um, space here where someone vaguely upstairs was doing a sort of sing-along to the Spice Girls, and that didn't make it onto the recording, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Oh, good. Okay, well, we're actually on time, and that's all gone very smoothly, so shall I start with the introduction? You start with the introduction. Okay. Um, Hello, Um, I'm Victoria Pearson, but you can call me V. And I'm here this evening, as usual, with the Barefoot Backpacker at RTW Barefoot, who, given their appearances in both the Metro newspaper and on BBC Radio Sheffield, is arguably the ninth most famous person to have lived in Kirkby in Ashfield. Now, Barefoot Backpacker has travelled all over the world, from France to Vanuatu, but today we're talking about hometown and local travel. So I'm sure Kirkby and Ashfield, the little market town in Nottinghamshire in England where Barefoot grew up, will come up a bit later. But before we jump into the hometown travel space, um, and I will run through this at the end again as well, I would just like to remind you that you can follow along with Barefoot's adventures on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and on their podcast, Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, which you can find on their website, barefoot-backpacker.com. At the end of the space, I will share their link tree where you can find links to all of their stuff and sign up for their newsletter so that you can follow the adventure right from your inbox. Right. So usually when I'm figuring out what question to ask you about the topic, I ask my family what they would ask in case they come up with something interesting that I haven't thought of. Um, My daughter's response to today's topic was, A, what? That doesn't make sense. How can you travel in your own town? You live there. So how do you be a tourist in your own town? So, here's a question for you. What do you do on holiday? Um, You know. Sorry, I was muted for a second then. Um, I 
don't know really i suppose go and see all of the local stuffs hmm. and, and this is the point so you know sort of unless you're the sort of person that you know spends two weeks in a resort or you know on a cruise ship or something kind of isolated away from the real world chances are as you say you just go out and explore the town you'll visit museums you'll eat in restaurants you'll I don't know, see the scenery you'll take a couple of trips out maybe to somewhere regionally interesting you'll generally get to explore and know a place and experience it even if it's just for a short time and two things spring to mind about this firstly you can do that anywhere there's nothing stopping you from doing that in any place in the world everywhere as they say is interesting That's everywhere has a pool, as i say indeed everywhere has a pull but also secondly everywhere you go and every place you visit there are people people live there and fundamentally when you think about it what's the difference between you visiting a new place exploring it and seeing what it's like and people visiting the place where you live and exploring it and seeing what it's like and as an aside people around me especially my old work colleagues went things like aren't you brave visiting places on your own and my instinctive reaction to that is always no because fundamentally what's the difference between you know me catching a bus from Nador to Wijda in Morocco or you know so what's the difference between that to someone taking a national express or megabus from London to Newcastle or you know the difference between taking a local bus in Ghana from the center of Accra to the suburb of Darkman or you know taking a local bus from say Nottingham to Kirkby and Ashfield these are you know the journeys that lots of people do every day and the only difference is that you know they're local to us so we don't think of them they're mm. mundane they're ordinary they're nothing particularly special if you do them every day but if it's the first time you've done that journey they become fascinating so you've got you've got like new things to see out the window you've got new experiences you've got new people to watch but that's that's true regardless of whether it's your first journey in england or your first journey in matabili land your first journey in new york or your first journey in new caledonia if you've never seen a place before regardless of whether the country itself is familiar there's always something new to see out the windows, if nothing else. So I guess that's true. I guess you're saying that anywhere can be touristy then. Oh, if we take a holistic view of this, yes, everywhere can be touristy in the sense that everywhere can be seen for the first time and often is. So, you know, being a tourist in your own hometown is simply a case of thinking, if I were coming here for the first time, what would I see? And I don't mean to see in a planning sense. What I mean is simply in the first instance, if this was my first time traveling here, what would my eye be drawn to? What, what would I notice? What would stand out? Then on a second level, we'd go to what are the tourist attractions? What do the local hotels or the local tourist boards suggest as you know, places that people knew here should go? What is interesting? What should be seen? What, what is out there that attracts people to this place? And I mean, obviously, the answers to all of those questions might be different, of course. Where someone you should go and what is interesting might not necessarily be what you find interesting. Um, the main vibe I found with people talking about their hometowns is because they see things all the time, because they, you know, they walk down the same roads every day. They just become accustomed to what's there. They don't see things because they see them every day. So they don't stand out to them. I think there's a phrase that's often used. It's, uh, what is it? Um, familiarity breeds indifference. It's just so easy to take the same route every day and just not look at things because you see them every day and you kind of don't really pay attention and lose sight to what you're actually looking at. And, you know, you'll be on a bus and the journey will just become a place to catch up on Instagram rather than looking out the window because you've looked out the window every single time you've taken that bus route. But things might have changed. 
and walking to the shops becomes quite an introspective journey done on autopilot. You spend so long thinking about whether you embarrassed yourself at the night out four years ago that you arrive without having seen anything at all en route, without even remembering anything about the route there. You know, you'll, you might have passed six people, an alien and a dolphin on wheels, but you wouldn't have noticed them because you're just too fixed in walking down the same street. So you don't notice anything that's different. And I guess hometown travel is about breaking that pattern. It's about paying attention to what's around you every day. It's about seeing your everyday roots as if you're seeing them for the first time and seeing what's new and just looking out for things that are different and looking out for things that strike you as unusual because you've not noticed them before. Mm. What is it that um, originally sparked your interest in hometown travel or gave you the belief that everywhere is interesting, that you can approach your hometown as a tourist, as a traveller, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a tricky one, actually, because in a sense... I don't think anything did. It was, it's kind of, I think it's hard to describe, but for me, I think in my head, it was always just the natural thing to do. I mean, partly it's driven because, well, I mean, as you know, I, I like walking. And sometimes that means I just like walking aimlessly around and, you know, not really planning it, just going out and seeing where the road takes me. And one of the advantages of, you know, going from your own home is that it's there. It's right there. So it's a really convenient base to, to use from, to go for a long walk like that. It's possible it could be ADHD related in my particular case, you know, sort of always wanting something new and exciting to explore. And from any given building, there are many, many directions one can go in, um, in general anyway, if not necessarily immediately as you walk out the door. But there's always somewhere to go. And there's always somewhere to go that's new. And it, it might have been a while since you've been up that particular road. I think I've always done this. Uh, I certainly do it today, but I certainly I used to always do it. Uh, as a teenager, for instance, um, I've always been into running. So I just go for jogs. I just go down roads I'd never been down just to say I'd been there and um, just to see where they went. And obviously, when you're jogging, you can do it quicker. Uh, so if you take a wrong turn or you end up down a dead end, it's not a big deal to come back. Although I do hate going back on myself. I do hate going down roads more than once in one journey. I always like to, to loop. To be but, fair, I find running easier when I am a little bit lost because then I'm too busy thinking about where I am and I don't need to worry about dying. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, what's, what's actually interesting is that when I go running, I, I don't take my map with me because I've usually planned that out beforehand. But, <laughs> and also because I've got nowhere to put the phone. Um, I was going to say, I, I mean, maps. I mean, I've always been interested in maps. I've always been interested in what lay beyond the edges of maps, uh, as you know. And my fascination with maps is, you know, it's just as much with local A to Z and OS maps from the Ordnance Survey in the UK as it does with world atlases. The only difference is in, in the local maps, the boundaries were dashed red lines separating district councils. And in the atlases, they were solid black ones separating independent countries. But it didn't make a difference. It was still somewhere new, somewhere different that I could explore. A new boundary to cross. I knew, oh, this is a whole new world. It's called Nosley. Um, it's, you know, a new and a new and different place to explore. And so now I currently, for example, I live in Glasgow and I've recently calculated that there are 10 railway stations within a mile of where I live. Mm. This is, I mean, it's, it's, it's excessive. Within a mile? Within a mile. There are 10 railway stations within a mile. That, on, that excessive. <laughs> on two and a half different railway lines. I mean, bearing in mind, I, I, I spent a year in Sheffield last year and there were only six in the entire borough, one of which is in a completely different town. So and Sheffield's about the same size as Glasgow. So, yeah, Glasgow's suburban rail network is a little excessive for the size that it is. But 
Um, what I'm doing is, because Glasgow's got so many railway stations, is I'm using them as a kind of waypoint. So essentially I'm going, well, I've never been past this railway station. And while that sounds particularly weird and geeky, what it actually means is I've never been to this part of the city. So I know nothing about it. So I'm using the railway stations as a way to explore a part of the city and the region that I haven't been to yet. Um, yeah. Now, admittedly, it's I mean, most of it's residential. And after a while, <laughs> you know, walking, walking a mile along the road of it loses its initial charm, just even if it's, you know, oh, this is a really nice street full of single rise, completely white houses. And then you walk down it for a mile and go, oh, now. But still, I'm, I'm there. And. Them, there is often something down that street or off a street that you're walking down that you wouldn't expect. Um, there's always unexpected, unfamiliar things like old bridges, interesting street art, unusual buildings. There may be plaques commemorating things that or people that have gone before or, you know, on this on this place, something interesting happened 200 years ago. Sometimes you find some really odd stuff like, you know, a huge Christmas tree in the middle of a busy roundabout. <laughs> or an Iron Age hill fort in the 1950s council estate. Uh, where was that? That was Sheffield. That was Winkerbank. Now, it's not a very interesting Iron Age hill fort because Iron Age hill forts aren't very interesting in practical terms. Um, it's basically a hill. Yeah. <laughs> the fact is, it's there. And it's an interesting, notable point. So you can say, I've been to an Iron Age hill fort. There's one right there, you know, a mile away from where I live. And it, it, it falls into my old mantra, as we've already discussed, that, you know, everywhere is interesting. So one of my issues is that people kind of go all over the world to visit old buildings or scenic spots without necessarily realising that people come from all over the world to where you live to do the same thing. And this is especially obviously being British because um, we're a country that's had very intensive civilization for quite a while. But so I used to live in Kirkby and Ashfield, which I'm going to mention a lot in this space, I think. Yeah. And Ashfield, it's an old it's an old mining town. And there are places in um, the UK like Saltaire and New Lanark and Bourneville, I think, and Port Sunlight. They're places on the UNESCO World Heritage Register as being places of significant historical interest. And it's basically old factory villages. So someone would have built a factory and then they build houses for the workforce. And in those particular towns, those houses are very, they're, they're, they're of the period, but they're very well maintained and they're very clean and they're very, I mean, clean to look at. They're very bright. Um, they're very stand, they're very sort of quite uniformly standard, but they're also quite pretty. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because Kirkby and Ashfield is a town from more or less the same era in terms of when most people moved there. So people go to places like Saltaire and New Lanark to see the housing and to see the factories. And I'm living in the sort of place that they would go to see. Um, the only difference between Kirkby and Ashfield and, and Saltaire is the fact that someone's actually looked after Saltaire and made it look pretty, whereas Kirkby and Ashfield <laughs> is not pretty. There's no difference between them. It's just one of them's been more looked after than the other. So from my point of view, those sorts of places aren't that special because I see them almost every day when I live there. Yeah. But people will come over the world to go to a place like that. And that's the sort of thing what I mean by, you know, your hometown may be interesting, your hometown may have something about it that attracts people, even if you don't see it yourself. Where would I start then if I wanted to approach visiting my hometown as a traveller, but I didn't want to just spend my day walking down residential streets, not finding anything? Well, um, I would say the best place to start is as soon as you walk out your door. And 
you look at sort of things like residential streets, but ask yourself these questions, and this is purely rhetorical, but just ask yourself, next time you go out your door, think about, are all the buildings in your neighbourhood, what are they like? Are they all the same? Are they unusual? What does that mean in the context of your suburb? Were they all built at the same time? You know, what's that building on the corner? Why was it built that way? Where do the buildings change in style? Where do the streets change in style? Where do the trees start? Where do the trees stop? What is that park over there? How big is it? What's in it? And then you do things like look up, always look up, always look down, always look to the sides and always look behind you. There are things you may never spot because they're like, you know, high up on buildings like gargoyles or weird statues or things like that. Um, there's a couple in Derby in England where there are buildings in the city centre. But if you look up to sort of like four storeys up, there are like Greek statues, like statues of, of Greek gods and things like that just on the corners. And you wouldn't see them if you're just walking down the street going to the shops. You have to look up to see them. Some things that you see, you know, there might be things on the floor you step on every day you might never notice. And obviously a lot of these are mundane. But things like manhole covers, you know, they usually have some kind of info on them like where it was made. So you think, is that place near here or is that place far away from here? What does that tell you? Not just about, you know, where you are, but about the place mentioned on the grate. You know, I walk around here and a lot of the things, a lot of the manhole covers are made in Paisley, which is like eight miles away. Whereas I go to some places and the manhole covers are like made in Cinderford in the Forest of Dean, which is like, you know, that could be like 200 miles from the town that I'm in at the time. Um, there's also things like art, um, memorials or, you know, some information about the history of the place. And... And I mean, for me, I've always had that interest about the history of the place. You know, why does this place exist? What is it about this place that makes this place the way it is? Um, you know, why is it here? It's one reason why I travel in the first place. Why? Why come to this place? Why do people live in this place? What is it about this place that's attracted people? And, you know, there's, there's no real answer to that. But it, it, there's, it means there's no real difference in why I travel to like Albania or Zimbabwe, um, as opposed to, you know, Bedford or Cinderford or somewhere. Um, everywhere I am not is a place to explore. And where I am is generally a circle about two foot wide. So this, this and this applies locally as well. It's like literally just within a walking distance of me and my flat is a suburb of Glasgow called Battlefield. And there's a monument. There's a big um, uh, obelisk in a roundabout. And it's called Battlefield because there was a battle there, funnily enough. Um, and one of the generals of the battle was someone that history refers to as Mary, Queen of Scots after whom the local park, Queen's Park, where my local park run is, is named, and the Scottish football team. Yes, but not the London one. Um, so, you know, that's the, and that's just right there. And then you go from there to Queen, from, you go from Battlefield to Queen's Park, and then you go from Queen's Park to, from a battle to a whole history of, um, you know, sporting events, dead football teams, cultural ruins. So you've got the site of, I believe, one of the first international football matches, which is now a bowling green. And then next to it, you've basically got a literal abandoned football stadium with the terracing still intact. It's just a bit overgrown. And people come from elsewhere to see that. I even I got asked the other day from a, a passing car as I was going from one of my walks, where is Cathkin Park? It's literally just there. Don't know how you drive there, but it's literally just there. And sometimes I think that, I mean, because it's in Glasgow and because it's there, I, I just think sometimes, you know, even people from Glasgow often don't know what's there. And they go, oh, it's the other side of the river. It's too far away. Um, dude, where did you go on holiday last year? South Africa. Why? Well, then, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's the small stuff. There's a lot more than small stuff. Some things are big. So most towns will have at least a library. And larger towns will have a tourist information office. Both of them will have large amounts of information about the history and culture of the place that they're in. 
And the library is, well, sorry, the tourist information office is especially useful because, you know, by definition, that's what it's for. It's to cater for tourists who are going, well, so what's in this area then? What shall I do while I'm here? Most of the time, this is the big stuff. This is like museums. It's country parks. It's, you know, cathedrals. It's, it's shows and theatre and sporting events and things like that. Um, but very often, these, these are places the tourists go, but locals very rarely go because because they're right there. You know, it's like you can visit them at any time if you live there. So you never really think of them. So I, I used to live in Birmingham. I used to live in South Birmingham, a suburb called Bartley Green. And it's about a three mile walk, maybe four miles to Cadbury World in Bourneville. And I was living in Birmingham for, in that bit of Birmingham, for a total of about seven years. I visited Cadbury World. I visited it precisely once. <laughs> and I visited it six months after I left Birmingham. And <clears throat> I'd moved to Nottinghamshire at this point. And I visited it because I had friends from the USA visiting me. And they wanted to go to places in, in Britain. So I said, have you ever been to Cadbury World? And, I, and they went, no, obviously not. And I went, Fortunately enough, nor have I. Let's go. So <laughs> if I'd have been living in Birmingham, I could have just walked them there. But no, I had to get the train. And it just it's just weird. It's just it really? literally I walked past it several times, but I never went in. I find, um, I find that often in London as well, though. You'll say to a local person in London, oh, have you been to Madame Tussauds or the London Eye or the Natural History Museum? And they'll go, no, that's for tourists, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I mean, one of my very good friends who now lives in London uses the Victoria and Albert Museum's cafe as a place to work um, because it's a very pretty cafe. She doesn't care about the museum itself. In fact, she thinks the museum is pretty weird and not that worth visiting. But the cafe, the cafe is awesome. <laughs> it is a very pretty cafe, but it's very overpriced. Mind you, it's London. Everything's overpriced. Yes, you get used to it. There. The other thing about me is that I travel based on my own interests sometimes. And I'm assuming that a lot of tourists do, mm. but also a lot of locals will have the same interest. And so for instance, I'm Generation X, you know, I was, I was 18 in 1993. So I don't know how much you personally know about the early nineties on the grounds that you were seven. Yeah. Eight. But Manchester at that time was the hip place. It was the happening place. It was, you know, the cultural centre of the universe, pretty much. And you, you had T-shirts that said, on the eighth day, God created Manchester. So obviously at that age, that's when my peers were looking at going to university. And obviously a lot of them chose or wanted to go to Manchester because of that cultural vibe because of that cultural attraction. They wanted mm -hmm. to be a local in the city that was giving them all of their, all of that music, all of that culture, all of that television. Um, so they wanted to experience that from a local point of view rather than a touristy point of view. Um, that makes sense. That's a lot of um, Airbnb's sort of business model is trying to tap into that feeling of being a local, isn't it? Yes, yes, very much so. And I mean, when I, I mean, I like Airbnb. A lot of people don't, but I do. But when I use Airbnb, I I always choose the option to have a private room in a shared house. I don't like having the whole property to myself. I'd rather basically just glorified couch surfing, let's be honest. Mm. I'd rather use the advantage of that Airbnb gives me of staying in a room with a local person or a local yeah. family or you know, someone like that. 
because that's yeah. what I would do if I had a house that was anywhere worth um, visiting. Which I don't know. Kirkby National has a has a um, it has at least one hotel. Mm. Well, it's not a hotel. It's a it's a it's like an Airbnb, but it's not an Airbnb. If that makes sense, it's it's pre Airbnb. It's, it's a, yeah. like a like a a, a cottagey a thing. House. Yeah, yeah, guest house that that sort mm. of thing. I, I always wondered why at Kirkby National had a guest house. Um, there's also a big hotel just outside the town on the motorway junction, but that's because there's a business park there. And so that's catering for the business traffic. That's, that's kind of the only people that really come to Kirkby and Ashfield. Um, I mean, you mentioned London earlier. Obviously, I've just done three podcasts about London and some of the, you know, more obscure things that you might find in that city. Mm. And one of them was Enfield in North London, the borough of Enfield. And the fact that the Barclays Bank branch there in the centre of town ha- hosts the first public ATM in the world. That's quite a niche claim to fame. <laughs> Incredibly niche. But the thing is, a few days, I mean, I was down there for a travel blogger conference and this was, bef- I mean, I, I went, I just did a bit of exploration around some of the London boroughs just before the conference started. But at the conference, I met someone from Enfield who did not know that, even though there's a plaque on the wall where the ATM was because they moved the ATM around the corner because it was getting in the way because people were just queuing into the pavement. So there's a plaque on the wall where the ATM was, uh, still a bank. And even though she would have passed that, like, probably quite often during the week, because it's literally in the centre of town, she did not know that Enfield had the world's first public ATM. See, I can forgive that because I drove past a little superstore once a week for six months before I noticed it. And I only noticed it because somebody else pointed it out to me. (laughs) A little superstore. Yeah, they're like massive and they've got like this massive red and blue and yellow <laughs> sign outside, like flashing halogen lights, all this stuff. And I I didn't notice it. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't notice a railway station yesterday. It's like, hang on, shouldn't I have passed that railway station? Look on a map. Oh, I did pass it. Well, where was it? I don't remember the It was literally just there. But I don't, I, yeah, it was weird. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously I can I, I can relate to not noticing things. And the other thing as well, I don't know if you find this, but when something becomes too familiar, like uh, a shopping high street, for instance, and one of the shops changes, how long does it take for you to recognise that? Yeah, sometimes it does take a while to notice it. You just see what you expect to see, don't you? Sometimes it can be not until I go to go into the shop that I realise it's a different shop now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and then you, 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 you... probe your mind going well when did that change oh it changed about seven months ago what and then you're stuck going what was it (laughs) don't start me on that because now i'm going to wonder what that new cake shop actually used to be for ages i'm going to have to google that later now well well, that's easy now because you've got google maps that um, street view goes back quite a way so it's actually quite interesting especially up here in glasgow because they built a, a, a great big 1970s motorway viaduct about 10 years ago um, just on the road between me and the city centre, and so, running late then. <laughs> it looks like a it it, it looks architecturally <laughs> like a 1970s motorway viaduct, even down to the colour scheme. But it, it's, it's literally only ten years old, to the extent that Google Street View seems to start in about 2008, and mm. it's not there. And then the 2009 Street View sees the workings of it being built. That's quite a cool archive, really. It is. It's awesome. 
Um, it's great to go down roads that don't exist and things like that. Yeah. I'm going to ask you this question because I've tried to three times now. <laughs> when you are being a hometown tourist, right, do you plan your day in advance to make sure that you're seeing cool things or do you just sort of drift about and see what you see along the way or do you do a bit of a mix of both? Because I know when you travel, you don't like to plan, but when you hike, you do like to plan. So The one advantage with hometown travel is that you don't have to. So, for instance, you can walk out of your home and go down a street and go down another street, pass something interesting. And then when you get back home, you can look up that something interesting and see what it was. When you're looking up that something interesting and you look on a map to see where you've walked, you realize that one and a half streets away, you pass something else that you didn't even know was there. But because you're traveling throughout your hometown, it's not like you've missed the opportunity to see it. You can just go out the next day and see it. I suppose that is a very good point. You don't ever feel like you've got a rush to see everything. Yeah, absolutely. So as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm using the local railway stations as a guide to which parts of Glasgow I haven't been to yet. If I plot a route and miss a railway station accidentally because I forgot it was there or something, then all I do is plot a new route next week that'll go past it. Um, I passed a railway station completely accidentally on one walk because I didn't I, I just did not know it was there. I didn't look on the map closely enough to realize, oh, that's where I've gone. Um, so that was a bonus. Yeah. So, you know, you just look at the maps either before or after and go, oh, that's what that is. Sometimes you'll sometimes you'll do that. So sometimes you'll pass something that you didn't know was there. You'll You'll sort of read a plaque to it and go, oh, so some famous person lived here. That's interesting. But when you get back home, you might find that 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 famous person not only lived there, but went to school two streets away and made an important discovery four streets away. Mm -hmm. You can just go out and see the rest of it. There's a whole thing around here about the uh, about football that I haven't explored yet. There's like buildings where certain bits of code were uh, created. There's buildings like where I mean, one of them is where the Scottish FA was founded or something. But there's, there's like I've not been there yet, but I know that they're close by and I know I can walk past them at any point. So at some point I will design a route to do it. The only problem, as I say earlier, is if something is close by, you don't necessarily feel you have to do it now, which therefore means you probably won't ever do it because now will never come. It's like there's there's a place called the Hidden Gardens, which is this apparently quite pretty garden area that's behind a theatre that I pass every single time I walk into the city centre. I have never been into it. And at some point I will go in, but I always forget because when I'm walking past it, I'm always, there's always somewhere else that I'm going to be. There's always somewhere else I'm planning on going. Mm. So I, I don't think of just popping in. It's the same with, there's a couple of graveyards and cemeteries like that. It's a couple of big cemeteries um, where there are, you know, notable and famous people buried. What, I can't remember what it's called, but there's one on the way to Paisley that's got a few interesting burials that I've walked through once, but I need to walk through it again and, and find where the, where the famous burials are. And everywhere's got a famous cemetery. Obviously, London's got many, many of them. Um, mm. Sometimes I'll take a map. That's the nice thing about something like the, the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, because it actually tells you, it gives you a map, and you can, you can even take a leaflet that says, these are all of the people that you may have heard of. It's a very long list. And map's the main thing that you use to sort of plan your day then? Yes, although it's difficult to get lost in a in your hometown, um, especially a hometown mm-hmm. as big, even a hometown as big as Glasgow. And what I've noticed is that some of the routes that I've taken, I pass a bus stop and go, oh, I can get a bus back home from here. Oh, why can I get a bus back home from here? That's really weird. But I can. This is cool. 
So I know that I'm never that too far away from home. Yeah. If I'm exploring a city centre, then I'm also likely to look at things like guidebooks, uh, websites like Wikitravel, tourist information centres, that sort of thing. Because there's going to be something I don't know. I don't know everything even about Kirkby and Ashfield, never mind Glasgow. So there's going to be something that I didn't know, some, you know, backstreet museum or um, someone interesting lived here, that sort of thing. One thing I will say about hometown travel, though, is because you've got the time to do it, you can really, really get, shall to say, beyond the brochure and, and delve into the detail of the place. So, you know, a, a guidebook might tell you that a battle here happened at what is now a roundabout. Living locally means that you can research the battle, trace the actual route the armies took to get there, walking their path would otherwise you know, be an everyday walk, and even go to the park where it's alleged that one of the commanders of the battle looked out the battle from. So you can see what they would have seen. Well, obviously very different because there's a lot of houses in the way now. Um, yeah, that's still properly stepping into the history, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. You can definitely step into the history more when you're, because essentially you live here, so you've got the time to do that. Mm. So you're not rushed, you don't have, to, it's not a case of going to a city and ticking off loads of boxes going, I must do this, I must do that. It's it's literally, I mean, it's the epitome of slow travel. There's a lot of people that are really big into the idea of slow travel, taking your time to explore mm. a place. And living in a place is kind of, by definition, slow it's travel. Slow travel, yeah. Also, so, also, also um, it's like you can, so you can see a place, you know, through all weathers. You can see what people in history would have experienced when they first moved to, it, to this place, where they first set up a factory. You can see what it would have been like in the height of summer. You can see what it would be like in the depths of winter. You can, you know, if, you know, if a guidebook says a mm. famous person lived here, that means that, you know, you can walk the same streets as they did, literally following in their footsteps, as you say. You can visit the same clubs, you can visit the same cafes and the same parks. So you get a feel for not just, you know, who they were, but also why they were, what drove them to be who they were, what they saw and how they saw it, which is exceptionally good for uh, authors. Um, so, I mean, Kirkby and Ashfield, again, is close to D.H. Lawrence territory. Um, there's a lot of the areas that D.H. Lawrence writes about in his books are based on, I mean, his home was Eastwood, and there's still a D.H. Lawrence Museum there. But if you read the books and then walk around some of the villages near Eastwood, mm -hmm. you can definitely see what he was trying to talk about. Definitely yeah. see and that's true for anyone who's writing, even if it's, you know, a contemporary female chiclet novel. I've been to Saltburn-on-Sea, which is um, famous in a couple of uh, chiclet novels. And um, it's... Uh, you know, it's it's just interesting to uh, get the see a place that you've only read about and a place that you've only read about, but it's local, so it's easy to get to and it's easy to explore, and you can you can take your time to see it rather than just passing through because it's somewhere you'll never visit again. Yeah, and you don't have that pressure that you sometimes feel of got to see it all or I've wasted my time. Yes, you just go home and rest and then go out again another time. Absolutely, very much so. Um, so you get to treat it differently from travelling abroad in that respect, but do you treat it the same in terms of things like budgeting and loosely planning your itinerary and stuff like that? <sighs> well, OK, so I guess the main difference between hometown travel exploration and you know, certainly international travel exploration is expenditure. Like, you know, you could go a couple of hours away by train or by coach. You could spend the night in a neighbouring town. You could you know, spend the whole weekend there if you wanted in a decent hotel. Um, but the likelihood is in hometown travel, you're going to be using your home, your, your literal home as a base. 
So, you know, you compare that to the cost and the comfort factor of traveling abroad, it's a heck of a lot cheaper because you're not paying for as much. You mean your, your travel will be less, will be cheaper. Your accommodation will be cheaper. Um, so you can budget to be a bit more luxurious if you wanted to. I mean, the, the caveat to that is, you know, domestic travel in the UK is ridiculously expensive, relatively speaking. And tell me moment, about it. Yeah, quite. I'm taking my kids to Dorset and it's costing me a small fortune. Yeah, I mean, going for a week. And I travel alone and it's still expensive. And and it's, it's weird at the moment because hotel prices are, you know, ridiculously expensive across the roof, across the world. But um, so it always seemed like it felt cheaper to fly to and stay in, you know, Greece or Croatia than, you know, Cornwall or Wales. But if you're using your home as a base, you can do a day trip to a neighbouring county for, what, 20 quid? You can spend the night in a cheap B&B above a pub for like 50 or, you know, Premier Inn and Travelodge do exist for a reason. Uh, and you can make things work out pretty well for yourself if you're just a bit more careful. Um, but obviously, as you say, it helps if you're traveling alone. Itinerary planning. I mean, bold of you to suggest that I plan my itineraries. But I, I, I mean, I'd argue there's no real difference between a three day trip to a foreign capital city and a three day trip to a city that's literally just there. You want to see the same things. You want to do the same things. And as I said earlier, wherever you go, there are people for whom that's their hometown. So, you know, people are coming to your town for the first time. So it's more a case of just imagining yourself being them. Think about what you would do if you were new to a city. What would you plan? What would you look for if you're going to somewhere abroad for three days? And then think the same questions about where you live now. Uh, and remember that if you know the city well, that might actually be a hindrance because it might blind you to what's there. So. I would say if you were going to plan, plan assume that you know nothing. Forget everything that you ever knew about your hometown and go into it thinking that you've never been here before and this is a new, exciting thing because everywhere okay. is interesting. Okay, you say everywhere is interesting, yeah. But what if you live in Milton Keynes? Ah, Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes. What's not to get excited with Milton Keynes? I mean... No offence, <laughs> Milton Keynes. It's just that I hate you because I live here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's its existence, Milton Keynes' existence, is interesting in and of itself. Here's me now relaying, I don't know if Milton Keynes has a tourist board, but if they do, they may want to listen to this. So, Milton Keynes, one of the first new towns in the UK, one of the biggest. Recently given city status, although I'm not sure that actually means a lot really, other than, you know, to provide a local council with a bit of wank fodder. They, um, they can't celebrate it because we've been saying we're actually a city for years, even though we weren't. <laughs> Reading's been doing that for ages as well, I think. Um, the buses say city centre, it's not a city. Not that it matters. <laughs> Who cares? I mean, it's weird because, I mean, I grew up in Liverpool and then I lived in Sheffield for a bit. And in both cities, it's like, oh, I've just got to go to town for a bit. Yeah. And when we go to London, we go uptown. But when we go into Milton Keynes, we go into the city, even though it's only just literally become a city. Yeah, well... If, if I ever become prime minister, I would abolish city status because it's pointless. Not I'd the most I mean, that's not the most controversial of my of my policies, but it's one of them. Um, <coughs> anyway, <laughs> so Milton Keynes, home of the concrete cows, notable landmark, and themselves tale backstory. Interesting context. You've not seen the concrete cows, have you? No, didn't they get stolen? They're <laughs> <laughs> always getting stolen then replaced. Um, I suppose. I mean, I suppose they're in Wolverton rather than in Milton Keynes, but. Uh, they are the most famous of a series of animal sculptures created by local-based artist Liz Lay, who led a programme of encouraging art in the local, 
local community in the late 1970s. Bet you didn't know that. I um, didn't know. No, nor did I until today. Uh, <clears throat> the cows themselves are, as I said, they're in Wolverton, which is about that way. Well, it's over a thousand years old. It was in the Doomsday Book. Um, but it has actually been moved over time. And the modern town is more of a railway town rather than an old historic town. Uh, railways are obviously interesting in historical context of their own. Um, but it does mean that in the area as a whole, there's old buildings, there's ruins, there's sites of historical interest, there's remains of churches and the occasional hill fort. Indistinguishable from an actual hill. Yes, except that, you know, you stand on it and go, OK, so what you're saying is this isn't a natural formation. Someone's actually built this. Um, it's, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's also Bletchley. Bletchley, very famous, world notorious for Bletchley Park, the home of the codebreakers of World War II. And now there's a couple of museums there, um, not just a museum about the codebreaking, but also one about computing in general. And some of the oldest computers ever built, and some of them still work, are in one of the museums at Bletchley Park. I knew that mm -hmm. there was a museum there, but I didn't know that about it. Yep, yep. Um, I've actually not been to the codebreaking museum. I've only been to the computer museum, which is really weird. It has an Enigma machine in it, though. Uh, elsewhere around Milton Keynes, you've got Woburn Abbey, another easy trip out. Gardens, associated Safari Park. I mean, it's not, you, you wouldn't go there every weekend. Well, I'm sure there are people that would, like my mother would. Um, but regardless, you know, it's a uh, point. Lot. You are? That would cost a lot. <laughs> yes, it would. But my mother can afford it because, you know. Um, it, it's, it, it's one of those places that, I mean, you wouldn't go there very often, as you say, but it's notable. So you're in the area and you live there. So why wouldn't you? I am told that there is a part yeah. of um, Woburn where you can walk through the woods and see things like the elephants through the trees in their enclosures um, that isn't inside the actual safari park itself. So there you go. There's even a way of being a free tourist in Woburn. I got into Alton Towers theme park like that once. Anyway. Not that I am suggesting that anybody <laughs> breaks into the elephant enclosure, obviously. Well, I mean, you could break into the elephant enclosure, but it wouldn't be a very clever thing to do. No. Um, also, right, so you've got around Milton Keynes, you've got a number of country parks, nature reserves, and obviously it's a short hop to local towns and cities that, you know, have a lot to offer, like Bedford, Buckingham and Aylesbury, uh, or even Northampton, but possibly not Luton. <laughs> And 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 and, and you love Luton, really. Love Luton. And if the Luton tourist board are listening, and <laughs> Luton doesn't have a tourist board, and 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 even you know the smaller places have their vibes, which admittedly they're quite niche. So, for example, there's a small and unknown village called Woburn Sands. It's not particularly interesting in any way, shape, or form, but it is home to Olympic gold medalist Greg Rutherford. His event was a long jump and there's a commemoration of his achievements in one of the small parks in the village complete with a long jump pit and a measurement indicating i believe his longest jump which is eight meters and 51 centimeters i've jumped in that long jump pit i'm not convinced i managed two meters <laughs> because i'm not a jumper and i'm not a sprinter <laughs> i suppose it would be a fun thing to try out though wouldn't it to see how you measure up to the olympic athlete i don't know i might just find it a bit depressing so okay maybe milton Keynes was <laughs> a bit of a, a bad example here because it is you know up and coming town lots going on brand new city etc but you know what if you live in like a little village or a dreary northern town sorry the north i don't know why i said that <laughs> um or somewhere where you don't really feel like there's much going on I was just feeding you into Kirkby and Ashfield, really. 
I know you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, <sighs> everywhere is noteworthy for something, as I say. And I think even if you live in a small village of 200 people, there's there's a reason why that place exists. There will have been something that happened there, someone famous or notable that has a connection with it. May have only been one thing, but, you know, remember, someone has to live there and they can't all live in Camden because, you know, everyone seems to live in Camden. So, Ketman Ashfield, it is an insignificant ex-mining town in Nottinghamshire. Population of the whole area around 25,000. And I lived there for 15 years. Now, there's not a lot there. No particular reason why you'd want to go there, apart from the fact that it's quite cheap. The sort of place where three pound a pint for a beer is um, pushing it. But in the centre of it, there's a replica of a cricket wicket. Now, to be precise, there's three statues representing three cricketers from the notorious England tour of Australia in 1932-33, called the Bodyline series. So notorious, the rules of cricket were changed as a result of it. And in the 1980s, the BBC made a mini-series out of it. So why... Have you pictures of that on your blog? I have got pictures of that on my blog and all over Twitter. Yes, because it's uh, the three. I mean, the three um, the three statues in question, two of them are from the English side. Uh, people called Harold Lawood and Bill Voss. And they are there because they came from Kirkby and Ashfield, or at least its suburbs. And the third statue is of that unknown Australian cricketer that I've never heard of. No one's ever heard of. But his name seems like Don Bradman. Most famous cricketer ever to have lived, probably. So I know that... nothing about cricket. I can't help you. <laughs> yeah, no, he's 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 regarded as, as like the best cricketer that's ever been, and his his averages are like horrendously better than anyone else has even got close to. Um, so it makes sense. And he was batting at the time, so it makes sense that you know the three of them are there. So yeah, it, it's there because that really famous cricket tour of Australia. Two people came from Kirkby and Ashfield. We're on that tour. So it's very niche, granted, but if you're a cricketing fan, then there aren't many statues of cricketers. And even Don Bradman himself's only got like one or two in Australia. So if you're into cricket, it's it's a good place to go just to see it. It's niche, but it's there. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting. So it's something that somebody is going to be interested to see, I guess. Yeah. Um, and similarly, so just outside Kirkby and Ashfield is uh, very close to where I used to work is a place called Newstead Abbey. It's mostly famous for not actually being an abbey, being the ancestral home to a chap called George Gordon, Lord Byron. Uh, that Lord Byron, the early 19th century poet and socialite who was even worse at personal relationships than I am. <laughs> and despite it being his family home, he lost the ownership of it as a result of gambling. Remember, kids. Choose your heroes carefully. So yes. he's buried in the Byron Vault in a church in Hucknall, which is the next town to the south. He's buried alongside his arguably more successful daughter, Ada Lovelace, who's credited as being the world's first computer programmer. Mm. She hung around with Charles Babbage, who built what's regarded as the first computer, and she made the cards that made it run. Yeah. Also buried in that churchyard is a chap called Ben Cornt, who was one of the leading bare-knuckle boxers in Victorian England. And allegedly, and there's, an, there's someone else who's claims, who, who is claimed to be the inspiration for this, but it's very likely that he is the reason why Big Ben Bell in the, tower, in the Palace of Westminster at the Houses of Parliament in London is called Big Ben. Because, oh, really? Because he was a... I mean, he was quite, I, I don't know, I think he might have been a heavyweight boxer, but he was big. He was a very big bloke and he was nationally famous. And it's it's quipped that if memory serves, there was a discussion in Parliament about the bell 
when it was being made and someone commented that should it be as big as Big Ben? Because that was his nickname. Ben Corn was nicknamed Big Ben because for a boxer, he was big. Uh, and um, the nickname stuck for the bell. That is such a random thing to know, but that is so is. weirdly it, interesting. <laughs> and, and as I say, he is buried in the same church in Hooknell as Lord Byron and Ada Lovelace. Other thing that Hooknell is famous for is a Rolls-Royce factory where they tested out very weird and wacky aircraft, including what's known as the Flying Bedstead. It was called the Flying Bedstead because it looked like a bedstead, actually. <laughs> a lot like something out of a you know, 1950s Disney movie. Um, it may have been a little bit of a failure, but it was the first ever vertical takeoff and landing air vehicle. So, you know, without the flying bedstead, you wouldn't have had the Harrier jump jet. Again, niche, but interesting. Mm. And also... So you think everywhere's got something that's like that? Everywhere's got something that's like that. So, I mean, also now, um, I don't have a television, so I haven't seen it. But we've had the mini TV series Sherwood, uh, murder detective mystery set during the minor strike of the 1980s. And as an aside, Sherwood, of course, related to Sherwood Forest, which has its own fame and vibe. And many people outside of the East Midlands surprised it's a real place. But I did a podcast about that, about myths and legends. This is not that podcast. Um, that was an interesting podcast, though, and everyone should listen to it because I am also on it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but... So this this the series show the writer of the series is um, a local of Annesley Woodhouse, which is the same suburb of Kirkby and Ashfield that the cricketer Bill Voss came from. And it's based on real life murders that took place in the area at the time. So now you've got national recognition of what is effectively the town I used to live in. And, and you know, that's interesting as well, because people will go to places based on something they've seen on television or on, in a movie or in a book. And, you know, I think places are important and notable for a reason. So if you live somewhere small, that is still a place that has a reason to be and it's still notable in and of itself. Mm. Um, Kirkby and Ashfield, generally it's industrial or cultural historians that are going to be interested in it. It's got like mines, it's got railways, it's got hosiery. Um, there's a company, a company called Pretty Polly, which company mm. that makes and possibly bras. And it's was the first hosiery factory to advertise on UK television, apparently, in 1980. I did not know that until today. But they were based in Sutton in Ashfield, which is the town a couple of miles to the north of Kirkby. It's where it started. And there used to be a huge factory there that's still reflected in the bus stop name. It's now a housing estate, obviously. But where it was. So, yes, Sutton in Ashfield was famous for hosiery. And that's something I didn't know until I moved there. Well, I moved to Kirkby, but you know what I mean. I, yeah. I didn't know that until I moved to the area. I mean, why would you know that? Why would anyone know that? But having now <laughs> known that, it gives it something interesting about the place that you can sort of say, well, this is what it's famous for. This is why some people live here. Yeah. In one of our previous spaces, um, I think the one on Travel and Health, you said that one of the ways that you avoid getting sick is by eating like a local. So what does that mean for hometown travel then? Do you eat out more or do you cook at home like you usually would? Or <laughs> Well, <clears throat> there's a problem here because one of the problems with eating like a local uh, is not just related to hometown travel, but I mean, in general, uh, most people don't eat out very often. So if you live somewhere, you work somewhere, chances are most of the time you do home cook or you'll grab quick food from the local shop or takeaway, supermarkets you pass, You'll eat at a local pub, you'll order takeaway, you'll order pizza or something like that. 
And that's especially true if your hometown is a bit like Kirkby and Ashfield. And it's not that touristy or if you live in the suburbs. So, you know, if you wanted to not cook at home and what you cook at home could be just what you're used to when you were growing up. It's like, you know, um, my uncle was pretty good at making spaghetti bolognese. So I now make spaghetti bolognese quite often, um, which is not a local food at all. But if you didn't want to home cook, you know, you may be limited to like local cafes, many of which will be cheap fry up options that offer seven different variants of an all day breakfast for under eight quid, um, which will have closed by five. Or, you know, Greg's, Greg's. But Greg's vegetarian sausage roll is one of the greatest things in the universe. I was going to say, you can't go wrong with Greg's. Oh, you can. Have you ever had a slice of Greg's pizza? No, stick to their veggie sausage rolls, I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, occasionally you might run into a burger van, but do you actually know what's under those slices of bread, really? I'll tell you what, though. When I used to eat meat, I loved a greasy burger from a burger van. You, could, the, you can't replicate that in any way. The, the nastiness of it is just... Mwah. <laughs> I, I, have, I don't know if you can vouch for this, but I have certainly got other vegetarian friends that have said that the smell of frying onions from a burger van is one of the greatest smells in the universe. Yes. <laughs> and, and they are very frustrated. They cannot partake in the eating of that smell. <laughs> yeah, because it would just be humiliating to go up to a dirty burger van and be like, do you do a veggie option? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, there's seven letters in answer to that and the last three are off. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other thing about local hometown food culture in Britain is the pub, of course. And there's nothing inherently wrong with pub food. Um, although I will say that the chips and fries from Weatherspoons are one of the mysteries of the universe. How can something so simple have the texture and taste of boiled lettuce that's got cold? Um, but <laughs> but the point is, a lot of the people eating in a suburban pub will be people that live within a couple of miles of the said pub. Eat where the locals eat. So you eat where the locals eat. That doesn't mean you're eating what the locals eat. And it doesn't mean you're eating local food. Um, because, you know, that could include the Indian and Chinese takeaways. It doesn't mean it's, you know, it's like... We have this view sometimes as travellers that will go to a country and go, oh, I, I, I'm going to go to Paris. Let me eat some French food. And then you realise you go to the suburbs and, you know, they're ordering, you know, couscous and, <laughs> and stuff like that. What's local food in Britain? Four pints at the Weatherspoons and a Chinese takeaway. Um, true, true. I was going to say um, is one of our, our main foods, not a, like a kebab. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like the most, what is it, the most popular food in Britain is the chicken tikka masala which was invented in glasgow mm. just down the road um <laughs> i've been to the restaurant that claims to have invented it it's actually quite good um mm. anyway so the thing is i don't care how excited you are about local food i don't care whether you've lived there for 50 years or you've been in the country for 15 minutes eating the same food every day is demoralizing this applies to no matter what country you're in whether it's steak and ale pie paella or marfe it's great if you live in a large city and you can pretend to be a tourist in it because you can go for a three-night break to do what the visitors do, go to a different restaurant every night. Now, you know, unless you're eating regional cuisine, which is possible in Britain because you can go to like a, a really nice Scottish fish restaurant or, you know, uh, I don't Can't know. Can't be a cream tea in Devon. Absolutely, exactly. A cream tea, an afternoon tea in Devon or something like that. But <laughs> it's likely that you're going to go to a restaurant for its quality rather than its origin. And mm. while it might not necessarily be up to the quality that you get in the region of origin, and Laura, my friend, says to absolutely avoid Mexican food in the UK because we do not do Mexican food in the UK particularly well because we don't have very large Mexican diaspora in the UK. But cities with, you know, a large diaspora population 
then go for it. You know, Indian style food in the UK, absolutely fine. North African food in France, Turkish food in Germany, Mexican and Italian style food in the USA. You know, places where the locals in that city, there are still strong connections to heritage, even though many generations may have passed since the original immigrations. And, you know, it's not that easy to do in your hometown because, you know, if your hometown is like Kirkby and Ashfield with 25,000 people in it, your entire eating options might well be two to three takeaways, an Indian, a Chinese and a chippy kebab combo, a pub and a small supermarket. That's where you might have to get creative. That's where you might have to do a bit of research or, you know, get the pots and pans out. But everywhere, kind of, has a local cuisine. Pretty much every region of every country has some kind of speciality. There may be only one or two, and they might be very much skewed to one type of food, but they will exist. So Kirkby and Ashfield itself isn't notable for anything, but Nottinghamshire is the home of the original Bramley apple. So if you wanted to get true local food from your hometown experience and you lived in Kirkby and Ashfield, you'd get a few Bramley apples, you'd make a pie or a crumble. And if you really wanted to push the boat out, Stilton isn't too far away either. Not that I have blue cheese because blue cheese is evil and smells of feet. Um, similarly, not far away to my west in Kirkby and Ashfield, it's the small town of Bakewell, home of the Bakewell tart and the Bakewell pudding. So, you know, you just pop on over there, buy one from the local shops and eat it. Nice. Indeed. And then obviously further north, there's more cheese in the sort of the Yorkshire Dales and things like that. It's full of cheese valleys, Wensleydale, more cheese grommet. Now, it might be that you don't really know what your local food is. It might be that you do, but it's so familiar and it's so generic, you've never really appreciated it or had it at source. You know, you might live in a winemaking or beer brewing region, but you've always tended to have something from another country because it's cheap and reliable. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a speciality cheese made down the road, but you don't think to buying it because cheddar is right there in front of you in the supermarket. You may, I mean, my uncle lives in Gloucestershire and Gloucestershire itself and neighbouring Herefordshire, famous for cider, proper, decent, scrumpy cider. But how often do you have that compared to something like Strongbow? Because Strongbow is there and it's cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you live in the rhubarb triangle, but you haven't realised it for five years. But what's a rhubarb triangle? <laughs> it's a triangle full of rhubarb. No, it's like rhubarb... a Bermuda triangle, but the rhubarb disappears. <laughs> that is an absolutely fantastic thought. I hadn't... That, that would make a good song. <laughs> no, no, the rhubarb triangle is a area of West, West Yorkshire. Yeah, West Yorkshire, centred on the city of Wakefield. And it's not a very big area. But basically, (laughs) it's famous for rhubarb. Like at one point, 90 percent of the world's winter forced rhubarb production was in the rhubarb triangle in Yorkshire. Oh, how strange that it would all be done there, because we presume that rhubarb can be grown throughout the UK. Well, (laughs) something I didn't realise until I was actually researching this is that rhubarb is native to Siberia. Yes. Um, rhubarb thrives in cold, wet winters like Yorkshire. Mm. Um, so it just so happened that uh, sort of like farmers in the 1800s decided that uh, rhubarb was a really good thing to grow in, in, in Yorkshire. So they did. And they grew a lot of it. Um, forced rhubarb is a particular type of rhubarb. And it's it's called forced because they force it to grow in similar ways that you'd force cannabis to grow. Um, not that I'm suggesting. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't know what you mean by that. <laughs> I've never passed a shop that's, that advertises itself as selling hydroponics. Mm. Every time I pass a shop that says hydroponics, I always think, I know what you're really selling. You're, <laughs> selling. you're selling equipment to grow cannabis, but you don't want to say that. So you just call yourself hydroponics. But yeah, so forced rhubarb. Forced rhubarb 
was it actually yes it was forced rhubarb was given protected designation of origin status by the eu oh. like and champagne so if it's grown in my garden it's not really rhubarb because it's not from the right place it's just oh, no. like no no it'll be rhubarb but it can't be forced rhubarb it can't be oh. york well specifically yorkshire forced rhubarb so it's just gently sparkling gently persuaded rhubarb instead yeah, gently persuaded Bedfordshire rhubarb. <laughs> well, technically, it's Buckinghamshire. Yes, well, it depends what end of my garden I put it in, I think. But we'll <laughs> talk about that on our borders space. <laughs> <laughs> so I would assume when you're doing like local travel, you don't have to think about really taking much stuff with you like you do when you're traveling further away like is there any stuff that is must-have stuff to carry around with you if you're approaching your local area as a tourist i mean not necessarily because i'm a tourist but i would generally always carry a notepad and pen with me regardless of wherever mm. i go so i've got something to doodle um but the advantage of home travel is that you don't need to take much because if you know you're staying overnight then you can you know you can take some toiletries and a change of clothing but you know it's not like you stuck for shops is it like mm-hmm. oh, i need some underwear where will i go I, this, I've, I don't know this town i don't know where i can buy it. oh there's a primark um <laughs> you can always buy stuff you need you, there's no cultural or language issues there's no currency conversion issues uh if you're going for a day trip you probably don't even need id which is you know very useful if you haven't got any um, it might be an administrative and financial nightmare to get to Benidorm, but it's a much simpler process to get to Rilo Skegness if you're, yeah. and, you know, wherever, whichever country you live in, there are going to be equivalents of that. Yeah. I take a camera with me when I go for like three mile walks from my flat, but I'm that sort of person. Um, mm. In any case, a lot of people carry phones with decent enough camera on them. I prefer a dedicated camera, but for, you know, everyday photographs, there's not a lot of difference. So a phone camera mm. is probably fine. Let's not be too elitist about this. Um, if you kind of wander around your town or suburb, you, that's probably all you need. Uh, you know, mm. shops exist, but, you know, a walk for a handful of miles probably doesn't even need water unless it's a really hot day. And you may not even need to carry money, but, it, you know, it won't do any harm. Um, mm. The biggest question is, is, do you need a map? Mm. And that very much depends on you know, things like how comfortable you are exploring your hometown. Depends on how confident you are and how comprehensive the local transport network is uh, how far you're going and are you going to a specific location or are you just having a bumble uh, mm. I, I'd, I'd at least take the capability of a map like you know google maps or something on your phone and then at least you might not take a wrong turn and end up you know two miles in the perpendicular direction is the way you wanted to go which i have done many times um yeah uh in a city like glasgow there's a fair chance of a direct bus back to somewhere you know like even if it's the city center if you can get back to the city center then you're fine and yeah, yeah you'll you'll get you'll you'll at some point go oh i recognize that street uh whereas in a small town like milton Keynes, at some point you'll hit countryside and then you'll go eh, i didn't want to go there this isn't right i need to go back on myself <laughs> uh basically i i i i'd say that signposts and main roads are your friends because yeah. signposts will tell you where that road is going and a main road is okay so if there's a main road here that means if i follow it long enough i can get to another road that'll take me to where i want to go yeah and i suppose one of the advantages of um traveling around in your local area 
is that if you do get lost or you get into some kind of trouble, then you know the language. So you can read the road signs, you can ask for help from people, things like that, and it's a lot easier. Bold of you to think that my social anxiety doesn't kick in even when I'm in my home country. Mm. And so would you say that that's a good place then to start if you wanted to start dipping your toe into travel, but it wasn't something you'd done before? Yes. Um, if you're new to traveling, it's best to start with what you feel comfortable with, best to start with what you know and develop from there. Mm. And you know, <laughs> where better to start than somewhere that you culturally already know, where somewhere where the language is familiar. And, you know, where if you feel angsty and stressed about being somewhere new, you can just easily get back home again because it's a short and quick journey uh, and a cheap mm. journey. Um, and then you build on that so that, you know, this year I'm going to go to the next town. Next year, I'm going to go to the next county. And before you know it, five years have passed and you're hitchhiking around Burkina Faso or something. <laughs> Hashtag not a role model. Hitchhiked. <laughs> and I suppose, yeah, you would get the chance then to see your hometown in a totally different way. Yes, indeed. You can even buy a souvenir if you wanted to. You might have convinced me. I might have to have a go at travel in my own hometown. I might actually find something cool and stop disliking it as much as I do. <laughs> you can get a key ring with concrete cows on it. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to Although, obviously, I'm not encouraging it, but if a concrete cow just appeared in my garden, then that would be very cool. I think someone so, might notice. Because they do get stolen quite regularly, I think. So there must be quite a few gardens with concrete cows by now. You know you know the, the most famous thing in Glasgow, don't you? What's that? The traffic cone. The traffic cone. The traffic cone on the Duke of Wellington's head. Yes, um, I've heard that there's a big tower of them at the moment because somebody took it down. How dare yeah, they? <laughs> yeah, there was a picture going around Twitter about four days ago. of It's the end of the world, lads. <laughs> <laughs> the statue didn't have a traffic cone on it. <laughs> I think that that was very swiftly rectified and there were about eight or nine on there at the moment, I think. <laughs> it was kind of ironic because literally a day or two earlier, I'd gone past it, taken a photograph and, and, and put it onto um, Instagram stories, basically saying, um, like the ravens in the Tower of London, this <laughs> always on top of this uh, of the Duke of Wellington's head. And if it isn't, then, you know... <laughs> Disaster well, will be I do wonder what archaeologists and such will make of things like this. Like in my local area, there's going to be a concentration of concrete cows with no apparent purpose to them, and they're going to find statues with traffic cones on their heads because traffic cones don't biodegrade. And yeah, I just I find I wonder what they will make of our culture from these little things that we leave behind. Almost certainly something ritualistic. Um, <laughs> So I imagine that archaeologists 2,000 years interview will go, so they had this strange religion where people wore these cones on their head. Uh, <laughs> and then Daniel waits, oh, they worshipped cows. Remember, <laughs> take good care of your cows, as a podcast to always says. There is a um, mural a train station near me that they've even got pictures of the concrete cows on the mural. One of my children actually contributed to that mural and the concrete cows were their idea. <laughs> That's another reason you need to see the concrete cows. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You can actually see them on the train as you're going north of Milton Keynes towards Wolverton, but usually the train's going quite quick, so you, it's easy to miss. Mm. Well, 
you might well have convinced me. I might well, I will at least make a pilgrimage to the cows and try and find the concrete <laughs> cows, I think. <laughs> um, so I hope that everyone listening enjoyed our little chat today about hometown travel. Um, now, as I said at the beginning of the space, you can follow Barefoot Backpackers Adventures on barefoot-backpacker.com or listen to their podcast, Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, from whichever your preferred podcast provider is, or it is on the website as well. Um, or you can sign up to their newsletter to get their latest podcast, blog posts, spaces recording, and information on upcoming podcast episodes and how to contribute to them direct to your inbox. Um, the link tree with everywhere that Barefoot Backpacker appears online is in their bio, and one of the two of us will tweet it in the next few minutes as well, I think. Um, just make it easier to find. The only other thing to mention is that I was recently interviewed for a internet radio station about my oh, travels. You were. You were going to tell us some more about that. I remember reading about it in your newsletter, by the way. But yeah. tell us some more about that. What did you talk about? Uh, basically, it was just talking about who I was, what my inspirations were, why I travel the way I do, what interesting things that had happened on my travels, uh, and also the first best and worst experiences i'd had when i've been traveling or oh, uh, a it was for travel.radio and i was interviewed by the lovely asma yunis who is doing basically every week she's having a, an interview with a different travel blogger and influencer and i just happen to be the first so where can we find that to listen to is it still available online it is still available online or should be it's at travel.radio and there will, should be a listen again. Hang on, let me go to the website and I will tell you. Maybe you could tweet that as well? I, I certainly shall. At some point I'm going to put it on my thingy board, uh, Instagram as well. Yes, on demand. It's called the on demand section. And if you scroll down, you'll see Monday's. What was Monday's date? Oh, there we go, 27th. Global, global Gossip with Asma Yunus. And that was me. I was on that. Oh, excellent. Well, I'll have to give that a listen as well. Um, so if you tweet that, then I will tweet your link tree with um, everywhere that you appear online so that anybody listening can follow you all over the Internet, like some weird stalker. Well, I mean, yes. Right. Well, until next time, then um, I shall speak to you again soon. Well, hey, thank you for listening. Bye for thank now. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye for now.